Tonight's reading, we have uh, three different uh, things we're going to, to read. Uh, the first is uh, words that are attributed to the Buddha in a text called the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love, we will practice it, we will make it both a way and a basis. Take a stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. This is a reading from the Jesuit theologian Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Love alone is capable of uniting living beings in such a way as to complete and fulfill them. For alone it takes them and joins them by what is deepest in themselves. Love is the only force which can make things one without destroying them. And finally, from Pete Townsend. Love reign over me. Love reign over me, reign on me, reign on me. Kita wanted to add her voice to the liturgy <laughs> as well. So tonight's uh, readings uh, are all about love. And, and this talk is the way of love um, from a Buddhist perspective, at least this Buddhist teacher's perspective. And uh, it's a very profound, it's a very simple paragraph, but it's also very profound, and there's a lot of depth there. So what I'd like to do is see if we could just go line by line and kind of break that down for everyone and what the meaning is. <clears throat> I think for some reason, at least this is something I've noticed over the years, is that a lot of Buddhists have tendency to, to not talk about love. Um, they'll talk about wisdom, they'll talk about compassion, but the word love is something that uh, some people seem to be allergic to. And I think there are several reasons for this. One of those reasons is that the word love in English can mean so many things that in some ways we know what it means, but in other ways the meaning can sometimes, you know, be diminished. Like we'll say, I, I just love that sunset, or I just love that, that meal, or I love that person. <laughs> or sex is sometimes called making love. So <clears throat> there's just a lot of different ways that people use that word in English, and so because of that, and because Buddhists tend to be very specific about their words and very careful about those things, mindful, if you will, they don't talk about it. But that's unfortunate because I think that love is a central teaching of the Buddha. And not only a central teaching, but a primary one. And something that uh, the Buddha was, in my opinion, very clear about. So I'm going to talk about that and what that means. So when, when those first lines, um, the first lines of that, that reading, I'm going to go each 
line by line to kind of help us to unpack this. Um, you know, the first thing is that we say is the way that we, we must train ourselves. Um, and it's, it's a liberation of the self through love. And, of course, the Buddhist practice is about liberation and the way of liberation. And it is the process of freeing our minds and allowing ourselves to move beyond suffering. But more than that, to move into what we call the way of the Bodhisattva, where we learn to live life so fully and love so freely that we can give of ourselves completely without end. So let's take the first line, we will develop love. The way that we develop love in our tradition is through what we call the four direction system of mindfulness. This is a system of practice that our Sangha has put together over the years. It's a modern or contemporary presentation of the Buddhist teachings that can be used by anyone, whether they would consider themselves Buddhist or not. And our goal in the formation of this system was that we restore the therapeutic aspects of the Buddhist teachings, which sometimes can get lost in some of the more classical traditions. So we wanted to restore it to its proper place and kind of give it the consideration that it deserves. So when we talk about developing love, our way of developing love is the practice of the four directions. When we talk about the practice of love, the way we practice love is through all of the practices, but I would say that the primary one that we utilize is something called the four questions. The four questions of mindfulness are our primary practice or our primary way to investigate the nature of our mind and to see what the origin of particular feelings or actions that are unhealthy are caused by. And so this is a very precise method that allows us to go in and figure out exactly what thoughts are creating the feelings and actions that have been causing us suffering and to be able to clarify them and replace them with clearer thoughts that will naturally end the suffering. So that's how we practice love. Again, it's not what people might normally consider thinking about the word love. But for us, the practice of the four directions, and particularly the practice of the four questions, that's how we do it. That's how we practice it. Now, when we say we will make it both a way and a basis, we mean three things, as the Buddha says here. The first is that we will take a stand upon it. So what does that mean? The first meaning of that is that we are going to take refuge in it. We're going to take refuge in love. And when we do the liturgy, when we make the accord, we say we take refuge or we take sanctuary in the heart of being. And when we say this, what we're saying is, is we take refuge in love because we consider love to be the ground of our being the ground of our being in relation, 
the ground of our being and becoming. So the primary practice of this is taking refuge in our true self. This is the primary way that we create a foundation upon love. The next thing that we, we talk about as a way and a basis is to store it up. Now, when we say to store it up, what do we mean by that? Well, what we mean is, is that we're going to find ways, <clears throat> excuse me, to share our love and do it from a mindful perspective. So there's two primary practices that allow us to store it up within ourselves. And the first practice is called metta, M-E-T-T-A, which is a Pali term, which was related to mitra, which is Sanskrit. And it really means kindness or friendliness. So the way that metta is often done, and you'll find a lot of that in the Book of Common Meditation, we have a number of metta in there. They're basically prayers. So a very simple metta, and of course metta is throughout our liturgy, is may all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. And may all, may all come to know that peace which is born of insight. And understanding. That's a metta. When we offer metta for ourselves, or we offer metta for those we love, or we offer metta for the world, or we offer metta for those that we are in conflict with, this is a way for us to store up love. Sometimes metta is translated as loving kindness. Because what's implied is that love is the foundation to the kindness and friendliness that we practice. So metta is a great way to do this. And it profoundly changes this. When you're doing liturgy, <clears throat> where you're doing metta regularly, you're training the mind to store up love. And this allows you a greater capacity to share it. Because you're constantly storing it up. The other way that we can store up love is through the practice of mantra. Mantra is the practice of saying um, a phrase or a series of words that are like an invocation or an incantation. And it's a way for us to pray uh, through the use of chanting the words, saying them silently to ourselves, singing them. And one of the most powerful things about a mantra in storing up love is that no matter how we're feeling, anxious, angry, sad, whatever, if we, if we do the mantra, if we become the mantra, either by saying it out loud, saying it to ourselves, whispering it, weeping it, screaming it if we're angry, or singing it, as we do in our liturgy. That's a way for us to store up that power of love within ourselves. And those mantras allow us to free the mind and express ourselves in ways that we couldn't ordinarily do that. Some people preferred the metta, which is more like a prayer that uses words. And other people prefer mantra which is a prayer that is without words, really. And both of these are ways to store up love. And they change us. You can't practice metta or mantra 
without having an experience, a deep, deep experience of oneness, a deep, deep experience of this energy, if you will, this virya, this, this energy that fills us and, and, and we're able to share it. A lot of times when we read something in the news where we hear something um, that brings us some sadness or sorrow, so a lot of times there's nothing we can do about it personally. And whether we can or not, it's in those moments where the power of metta and the power of mantra can be in wonderful ways to express our love. The third thing that we talk about in establishing a way or a basis is to thoroughly set it going. So as I said, you could consider metta and mantra something of that. But another way that we can talk about it is particularly in certain things that we might do. The number one way that I as a practitioner can share my love is by sharing the Dharma. That's the most important thing I can do. And to me, that's, that's more important than anything else I might do. Um, so if there's someone suffering, there might be some immediate thing I might do as far as being some sort of pastoral care. But ultimately, I want to share the Dharma. I want to help that person to understand the way of liberation. I want them to be able to practice it and to experience it personally. Because ultimately, I can't save anyone. You can't save anyone. And sometimes even our efforts to save people they're not the most skillful. But what we can do is we can help people to liberate themselves. And we can do this by the practice of mantra and metta, but we can especially do this by sharing the Dharma and making that message clear. Another way that thoroughly setting it going is through what's called healing or right action. This is the third tenet of what we call the three tenets of practice, which are not knowing, bearing witness, and right or healing action. What does that mean? Well, it means in particular that whatever it is that we're doing, we're doing it out of a process of the Dharma. So we begin with not knowing so that we can enter into situations suspending some of our preconditioned perspectives. And, and allow us to try to see the situation as clearly as we can. And secondly, we bear witness to that. So we go in by not knowing, which is a form of humility, and then we bear witness to what we can understand and see, always knowing that whatever we do see, we can see enough that will help us to experience some freedom from suffering. But we also know at the same time that there's no hubris and that we realize that the picture may be bigger than even we can understand it mindfully. But that doesn't mean we can't understand it enough to eliminate suffering. We can't. The third is the healing action. So in a way, we don't have to think about what we're going to do. We don't have to really practice or work ahead about what we're going to do. If we are practicing not knowing and bearing witness, the healing or right action, or inaction perhaps, is going to naturally flow and so we don't have to think ahead of time what am i going to do in this situation we can allow ourselves through those tenets to naturally have 
this unfolding. Because again, we've been doing the other practices where we're taking refuge, taking a stand upon love, taking us taking, you know, refuge in the heart of being. And so whatever we're doing, those things are going to flow from us more naturally. Sometimes people get the idea further that in Buddhism there's no um, that it's amoral. And and part of the reason they get that is because we're not really um, supposed to be hung up on um, the ideas of thou shalt and thou shalt not. That everything we do is situational based upon an ethic of love. And so, you know, what I might do in one circumstance might be different in another, depending on the situation. And it allows me the freedom to express it that way more deeply. Another way that we can thoroughly set it going is through the practice of the precepts. And the precepts are things that we do, we take or receive whenever we become a part of the Sangha, the community. And everybody has their own version of the precepts. And we certainly recite them every liturgy. Um, and there are three primary ways to do the precepts. One is to talk about, you know, it becomes a little bit like a thou shalt not. So I'm not crazy about that version. But it makes sense. The second version is more of an affirmative approach to those precepts. And then the third way is more of a psychological understanding. We tend to use the more psychological understanding because I believe it fulfills the other two more clearly. So, for example, the first precept is often thou shall not murder or that murdering is not a good idea. <laughs> that murdering is going to probably create more suffering. And so it's not that there's a deity who's going to punish me if I do or don't keep the precept, but the precept becomes a guideline for cutting down on consequences that might be contributing to my suffering. Now, a more affirmative way of saying that, instead of saying that I will not murder, is that I will focus on creating things. I will be focused on being creative and, and creating things that are affirmative of life. And so that's another way of saying the same precept, but with a little bit more of an affirmation. So I think of myself as focused, and in, my intention is to be creative and to bring life, not to um, be destructive or destroy life. And the third way, the psychological way, is I vow to manifest my true self in all aspects of life. Well, this, this says it all. So the precepts can be another way for us to thoroughly set it going. And finally, I want to talk about the, um, you know, continuing here with the lines from the Buddha. I want, to, I want to talk about the way that love is specifically defined in the Buddha's teachings. <clears throat> and this is known as the four abidings. <clears throat> Excuse me. sometimes known as the four divine abidings of the Brahma Viharas. So the four abidings, a lot of people get confused about what they mean. You know, is this some kind of step-by-step -step process? Is this just a way of talking about the different qualities of an enlightened being? And in my understanding of the four abidings, the four divine abidings, is that these are the ways we define love within our practice. So let me talk about it. So, when I, so 
that's a little bit of a unique perspective. Not a lot of teachers use that angle, but for me, I've found that this is something that is very clear. So, we're, so how do we define love? Well, there's four different ways we define it. The first way we define love is by expressing kindness, as I said. You know, the, the, the word metta or mitra, friendliness or kindness. And this is a very simple level that we can express a love through. Um, some folks like the current Dalai Lama will even say, my religion is kindness. And what he's saying is that my religion is love and that kindness is the, the first and primary way that I can show that. The second way that we define love is compassion. And compassion in this sense is understood, it can, it, is, it can sometimes be a feeling, but it's not dependent on feelings. So that compassion is more of an action than it is a, an emotion or an emotional response. And one of the great things about that is, is that it frees me up from having to necessarily feel a certain way about someone that I want to express compassion to. And in fact, you could go so far as to say that perhaps I might be able to show compassion to someone I don't like, or maybe I, I feel strong negative feelings towards. Um, this understanding of love as compassion allows me to express that for that person without having to worry about how I feel or that I have to like them. It allows me to express it purely. The third definition of love is joy. Now when we say joy, what we really mean is joy in the joy of others. Because one of the unique perspectives of this definition of love is that joy is understood to only truly be experienced through others. In other words, real joy is when I'm experiencing it through a sense of interconnectedness. Now, the easiest way for me to illustrate that is as a father, right? So that when my son, uh, you know, experiences happiness or he experiences some kind of fulfillment, it brings me great joy. And in some ways, that joy transcends anything that I might experience individually. And I might say the same thing with my wife or the other thing with my loved ones, my friends, etc., etc. So... That's a wonderful way to express the Buddhist meaning of love, joy and the joy of others. And it's a great antidote to envy and jealousy when you start to practice the joy and the joy of others. It really is. And, it, and I think it's easier once you start to see how everything is one. So as I often say, when I see somebody do something terrible, I ask, why would I do that? And if I see somebody do something great, I say, wow, look at me, look what I did. So that, that practice allows you to kind of make an entry point into joy that's uh, easier. And finally, the fourth de definition of love from the Buddhist perspective is sometimes translated as equanimity. Now, what is equanimity? Well, my understanding of equanimity is that I learn to love everyone the same way. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're my friend or whether you're my enemy or you're, you know, 
a loved one or a family member, I learn to express love equally. To me, that's what the meaning of equanimity is. I know there's a lot of different ways to translate it out there and talk about it. And some people talk about it with reference to meditation and equipoise and things like that. But for me, equanimity, when you boil right down to it, it it's, it's about, it's not uh, defining who I'm going to love and who I'm not. That's why it's the, the second cry of our Bodhisattva's vow, to love freely, to love beyond my preconditioned notions of who I can love and who I can't. So I think that's very, very important. Now, the, the next thing that I want to talk about is the, the words that come from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and um, great theologian, very influential on me and, and so many others. Um, and I want to talk about something that he says uh, about love that I think is really important, particularly for the way that we in the Dragonfly Sangha practice the Dharma. And that is... Um, where uh, he says essentially that love alone is capable of uniting living beings and love is the only force which can make things one without destroying them. Now that's interesting, right? So he's, so he's saying that love is the only force or power that allows us to make things one without destroying them. What does he mean by this? Well, if you've ever had a chance to read um, Teilhard de Chardin, uh, he was a Jesuit priest, but he was also a paleontologist, so he was a scientist. And he was an earlier forerunner of trying to bring into the Christian tradition something that already existed in the Buddhist tradition, which was the idea of, the, of what he called the cosmic Christ or seeing evolution and seeing the unfolding of the universe, or even naming those processes with spiritual names from the Catholic tradition. This is something that already existed for millennia um, in the Buddhist tradition. But there's, so, you know, there's some interesting contributions and things we can learn from Teilhard. So what does he mean by this? That it's, it, doesn't just, it makes things one without destroying them. Well, here's the way that I understand this. The first thing is, and this is something that's very powerful and important, and that is our practice is not about destroying, cutting off, crucifying, or getting rid of the ego self. In fact, our mandala, which shows the circle or enzo of oneness with a hand in the print in the center, um, signifies that for us. And it's very important because a lot of traditions say that, you know, you have to get rid of the ego or you have to die to yourself or you have to sacrifice the self in some sense. And my understanding, that is not the Buddhist way. The Buddhist way rejects the idea of sacrifice. The Buddhist idea is to always include ourselves in the circle of compassion and that we're not we don't need to create some sort of primitive sacrifice or or blood offering to kind of make amends or to help us be one with each other and so when when Teilhard says this i think he's saying something very profoundly buddhist 
And that is the idea that at the ground of our being, the dynamic that we all can experience is the love of the true self for the ego self. And that dynamic relationship between the metaphor of the true self and ego self. The true self representing the enlightened, awakened, unconditioned sense of self, and the ego self representing the time, space, continuum, conditioned self. But it's love. It's the true self loves the ego self into being free from suffering. It doesn't try to cut it off or destroy it or somehow eliminate it as if it was possible that we could have an ego self that existed independent of everything else. And that's often what Buddhists say when they're talking about, I think, not the wisest or skillful words, no self. They're saying there isn't that self. That self doesn't exist. The idea of an independent existence is somehow we're going to cut off and that will free us. Contrary. Au contraire. What we're saying is, is that the true self liberates us through love. It embraces the ego self with compassion and kindness and friendliness. It allows the ego self to express joy. It allows the ego self to express equanimity through the love that we experience when we take refuge in our true self. So that's one thing that I think he means by that statement. That love is the only power that makes us one without destroy. The other is, is that we talk about the second principle of oneness, where we notice that we see the universe sort of acting out what it does. And you could say that if there's one principle about the universe that seems to be true, is that it's creative. But that creativity often seems to come about through entropic evolution. In other words, um, it's when one thing dies and another thing comes into being. So whether we're talking about stars or we're talking about seeds that fall to the earth and, and, and create new plants. Um, that seems to be the way that it works. And, and that is a wisdom that we learn to see the great changes that are constantly happening as a way for us to be harmonious with them and create opportunity out of them, even when they're, they're not what we wish. And that's a very powerful practice. But ultimately, our love is pointing beyond that entropic type of creativity. It's pointing to something that transcends or goes beyond all of those things. Or you might say, completes all of them. And that is nirvana. Nirvana is the word we use for that. Symbolically, we talk about the fulfillment of our destiny as Buddha, as Amida. That that is kind of our omega point, in one sense. That that is our fulfillment, our completion. But the more common expression for that is Nirvana. That that is the fulfillment of all the principles. And that in some sense, it transcends them. Love moves beyond just those forms. When Théodore Chardin says love is the most universal um, and most mysterious of cosmic energies, the primitive and universal psychic energy, the very blood of spiritual evolution, what he's, what he's saying is, is, at least in my uh, understanding, 
is that love is the most creative form of interaction that can be conceived between two beings. And that uh, even in our evolution um, as human beings, we end up with, with this, this concept of this reality of love. And, and what I think he's expressing there is that the word love can also be a way of talking about the, the energy of the unfolding of universal consciousness. And when we, when we understand it from that perspective, then love actually becomes the force that, that binds everything. And when we come from this perspective, we can see how rudimentary forms of caring for each other evolve into this more boundless and transcendent love. My favorite example is always the Mayasaur dinosaur. And uh, it was Mother's Day on Sunday. So the, this is the, the good mother dinosaur. That's what Mayasaurus means. But what you found, at least what they found, was that this was the first, they believe, first evidence of a dinosaur a reptile that cared for its young. And so we look at that and we say, okay, that evolved, and then there were mammals, and then we end up with humans. And you might say that early on in the evolutionary process, it was just kind of fulfilling the dictates of the genome that we were just trying to survive. But, you know, in, in self-conscious creatures that can open themselves up to a more universal Buddha consciousness, that those beings experience a sense of love that allows it to transcend the individual with joy and equanimity. Very powerful. And then finally, the words from Pete. I'll close with those. Love reign over me. Love reign over me. Uh, you know, I, I think that is a, a joyful cry, knowing that that is the way. That is the basis that we take a stand upon, you know, and when we say rain, rain on me, rain over me, which means that let my whole life, let that be the thing that reigns in my life. And for us, that is the relationship with the true self. And rain on me, the idea of falling freely. That's the idea of thoroughly setting it going, that we just allow that love that we have been embraced by, that is the ground of our very being, and we express it, and we allow it to be expressed without prejudice, to be expressed without any respect of differences. That is the boundless love of the Dharma. So. I hope that was illuminating and maybe something new. There's so much more we could talk about, but uh, I hope that'll give you a good start.